The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to uh, welcome Nihal Mehta, general partner at ENIAC Ventures to today's show. Now, after experiencing the downside of in or leading a tech startup with a failed dot-com venture, Nihal has founded and exited several uh, successful tech ventures over the past two decades. He was also an early investor in the likes of Uber and AppMob. So he's got a pretty strong track record spotting disruptive companies with unicorn potential. So uh, Nihal, a very warm welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, you're, you're based in New York, and I've been reading about the exodus from cities like New York and San Francisco. So how is life in New York these days? You know, in all fairness, we were outside of the city as well for a few months, and uh, we just got back. And uh, I, I missed it dearly, I think. You know, traveling all, all over the world, living in various cities across the country. There's no city like New York. And uh, when you come back, I think you realize just how massive it is, how much energy there is. Sure, you know, there's a bunch of restaurants that are closed and there's a lot less people on the streets. But they've been replaced with, you know, restaurants in the middle of the street and bars in alleys and uh literally sushi on Ninth Avenue, like a block from my house in Chelsea, in this beautiful tent with Christmas lights around it. So it feels, I mean, it feels in a sense, almost like a little a renaissance of New York, if you will. I think the people that, you know, were going to leave, maybe it's anyway, maybe it's accelerated their, their path, their exodus out. But that's, you know, what cities are for. It's kind of young folks come in and folks with kids and that need a little bit more space move out. So I don't know. I'm, I'm loving it uh, for, for what it's worth. And I think New York will always continue to be one of the most resilient cities in the world. Post 9-11, folks were saying that New York will never be the same. New York came back much stronger. And um, I think this is no exception to that. Well, let's hope it comes back stronger again this, this time around. Again, back to... To that first startup of yours. So you founded your first business during the dot-com era, and that business collapsed along with, well, so many other dot-com startups. So what lessons did you learn from the dot-com era, from the dot-com collapse, that you're now encouraging your founders to take on board during the pandemic? You know, one thing that, uh, that I learned that I actually experienced, that I actually did well, is failing fast. That was my very first startup, very first company that I raised money for, very first company where I had you know dozens of employees, and I failed fast. The company was started in '99, and we filed for bankruptcy in 2001. So that was quick, and um, you learn the most from the epic failures. I've been fortunate to have successes. After that, and I have to say my best learning, I say the MBA I got on the street was from that failure. And, you know, it really tests your character. 
your resilience, your decision-making, and it creates this epic sense of muscle memory and scar tissue, of course. But whether you're conscious or subconscious about this muscle memory, it's something that stays with you. And, you know, you kind of see better in the matrix the next time around. You avoid the same mistakes. You kind of see around corners better, you know, based on that, the failure that you felt, that you, that you embraced, that stung you. So that's one piece of advice I give to every entrepreneur. Fail fast. As an investor, you know, please fail fast before we invest. Uh, you know, don't fail fast on our dime. Although you can fail in small ways after we invest, of course, you need to be able to iterate and take data from your product very quickly to get to product market fit, which is the stage that we invest typically pre-product market fit. And that's essentially a, an aggregation of tiny, tiny, tiny little failures, right? That you keep on iterating on until you have a product that resonates. But uh, but failure is incredibly important in uh, you know in 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 your career in creating a, a great company, and so I, I'm glad that that was my first lesson. You know, I'm glad that it didn't take me much much time to fail. So besides fail fast, what other tips are you giving your portfolio companies? You know, I think in life in general, I think when you are fully aligned with your uh, niche in the universe, then you are going to be the most productive. You know, you are going to be the most important. You know, you're going to feel the most value on your role and your position, you know, in your life in general. And that can be in any industry, that can be in any occupation. But as Steve Jobs says, you know, you'll know it when you feel it. And a lot of folks spend their whole lives looking for that looking for that something. What is my founder market fit, quote unquote? What kind of single mission is super unique to me on this earth that is not unique to anybody else? And so what we tell founders, we challenge them, you know, with this question, actually it's part of our diligence. Is this one of the very few teams in the world that can pull off this mission? And so, you know, that essentially means the dots have to connect backwards. Every experience that the founder has, the founders have had in their lives need to amount to what they're building now. And it could be very unique experiences, you know, where you're born, how you were raised, what experiences that you've, what challenges you faced as a kid or, or, or in your most recent career, you know, some sort of pain point or some motivation that's bigger than yourself to make you want to create a business, a company that literally is defined by you uh, and your experience. Almost like a, a calling that gives life meaning for you. Exactly right. And, and, and once you find that, by the way, it's not a job, you know, it's not nine to five. It's, you think about it 24 hours a day. I mean, you're dreaming about it. And when you can, when you can be aligned to that extent, then you're actually thinking about it more than anybody else in the world. Like you're thinking about it more than Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or whoever you want to compare yourself to in your industry, right? If you're that aligned with your passion. And so, you know, we tell every entrepreneur and friends, figure out something that you 
find this thing. And it can take, again, people lifetimes to find that thing. Put yourself in environments that can motivate you to find those things. And once you found it, you'll know it and start building against it. But, you know, that's probably my number one point of feedback, you know, besides failing fast to entrepreneurs, as you put it, find, you know, find your calling. And let's talk about companies, you know, after you've invested in them, as they start to gain some traction, specifically on the enterprise sales side. Now, when we last spoke, you mentioned that you've come across some really quite creative enterprise sales tactics and tricks even to help startups who are struggling to gain traction. But what are some of the approaches that you've seen work? Yeah, you know, there's there's so many, you know, quote unquote, growth hacks, as I put it. And I'll, I'll give you some exclusive tips from the trade. When you're selling into an enterprise, obviously, uh, especially when you're starting out, you don't have the network to get to the decision maker. And by the way, decision makers always change and the industries you're selling into always change. And that's a, that's a challenge no matter what stage of the business you're at. And I think today there's incredible tools that have kind of more or less, commo- you know, helping commoditize access to these networks, Twitter, LinkedIn, especially, right? And so what's epic about Twitter is you can literally reach out to anybody at any time with an ad mention. You know, before that, it was very hard to get in anybody's inbox. Twitter is, you know, becoming more and more of a uh, engaged medium where if you ad mention somebody, whoever it is, they'll probably read it. They'll probably see it. And so you have a shot at that kind of 240 character level, of course. Twitter works even in enterprise, even when people got LinkedIn. I'm very, very long on Twitter. Uh, I think that no matter who you are, and I'm on both sides of this, the sender and recipients of these tweets, these tweets are read and they're often responded to. Uh, There's an incredibly high response rate. And if there's something super compelling in that tweet, like that's your shot. And if it's compelling, you're going to get a response. You're going to get a call to action. So that's Twitter as a a public social network. You know, LinkedIn uh, is also amazing. You can connect to folks, especially through other people, which I'll talk about in a second, the importance of that kind of intermediary network to make introductions. But LinkedIn is also plagued, I think, with a lot of spam. And they're doing a better job of that. But I think, in general, the credibility of some LinkedIn introductions, I feel like, has been going down, whereas whereas Twitter's been going up. But I think everybody has a different perspective. And it really depends on geo and, and, and a lot of other things. But one thing LinkedIn is really useful for is something that I used to do as a enterprise sales CEO, which is uh, something I call inception. So if you're trying to get to somebody and call it, you know, the CIO of a large healthcare organization, and you're selling some sort of SaaS software into healthcare, and you really want to get to this decision maker, you know, you kind of can obviously figure out who they are, you know, on the company's website, on LinkedIn. Through LinkedIn, you can actually see mutual connections. And I think that's what LinkedIn is really powerful for. 
And I call this inception because essentially when you can reach out to this person cold, of course, over LinkedIn or email or Twitter, but almost in parallel, you also tell them your mutual connections, this intermediary network that you're interested in an introduction. And so lighting up that network, in addition to reaching out directly, you can imagine what's happening on the other side. So that person receives maybe a cold email from you and then maybe a tweet from you and maybe a LinkedIn message from you. And by the way, stalking is okay in the enterprise sales world. I was going to ask about that. Stalking is acceptable. You know, just don't go over to, you know, the person's house. But you know what? Uh, persistence and is rewarded, generally speaking. And so they'll receive these messages from you and then imagine they're receiving also five or six messages from, from people they know and they trust, right? About you as well, because you've reached out to them. And so pretty close to 100% hit rate in terms of you will elicit a response from this person. And that response might be, hey, F off, <laughs> leave me alone. Although that's never, hap- that's never happened to me. The response is, okay, you know, you got my attention. Let's set up a meeting. Good job. Good work. Like I mentioned, persistence is rewarded. And I think this type of smart persistence as well, you're not just constantly cold emailing that person 10 times in a row, which by the way, you know, some folks do to us. That's not necessarily going to move the needle. But if you can go through people that we trust, that works. And I think that's what LinkedIn is really uh, is really good for. And anyway, I, I call that tip of the trade trade inception because you're almost you know incepting that person's radar with you in various different fashions, and that usually results in a in a response. What about the barbecue kit approach that you mentioned last time? CRM is really important as well. So you know, reward your best customers and your favorite investors, right? I think a, a little something, a little gift goes a long way. We have, a, we have a company that's doing extremely well in enterprise sales right now in New York. And you know what? They send epic barbecue sets to their top customers. I mean, if you think about Google, you know, as a bar in terms of how they treat their customers, every year they have a conference called Google Zeitgeist. And um, I was lucky to be there a few years ago. I was the plus one, by the way. My wife was invited, not me. Um, so, but but I got to I got to go and see see this thing. And you know, they invite their top hundred clients, and it is the most epic conference in the world. We had incredible artists performing, incredible food, incredible res- resort, incredible speakers. You know, it's probably one of the top conferences I've ever attended, and I was just the plus one imagine how those customers are treated. And so I think you want to really elicit that emotional engagement and that attachment, you know, with your best customers. And they're, they're not customers, they're your partners and take care of your partners. So, uh, you know, that's a post-sale CRM tactic for sure to show how grateful you are for that relationship. And these approaches are, are scalable and repeatable for businesses that are really starting to take off? I definitely think so. I mean, they work with small businesses, they work with Google, you know? It's about taking care of your customers. It's about making sure they feel very special and you're grateful for that relationship. So yeah, small or large, 
you know, we're on the boards of many enterprise SaaS companies. A lot of them are just starting out, you know, not even at a million ARR, um, but yet they're still doing pre-pandemic. They were still doing small conferences where they would take care of obviously their customers, ask certain customers to speak alongside of new customers even. By the way, the best mouthpiece for your products to potential prospective customers are happy existing customers. And so imagine, you know, creating a panel with a few of your existing happy customers with a few perspectives that you want to close. You'll probably get the deal without even having a pitch. You'll get the deal with just inviting them to the conference and having them sit next to a really happy customer. Does that work in a virtual world? You know, uh, I've seen, I think people are getting a little Zoom fatigue. Zoom webinars are were exciting, you know, five months ago, four months ago. I think now that's kind of simmered down a bit, but uh, I, I have seen, seen them work. I think, listen, at the end of the day, people like to speak about topics they're passionate about. And, you know, I think also folks are looking, they're yearning for net new relationships. So if I can meet somebody super interesting on a panel that I didn't know before, you know, that that's interesting. It's very hard to create new relationships post pandemic. So yeah, I, I still do think there's value in conferences afterwards. You know, if you can try to make things a little bit more creative, you know, I don't know, everybody wear a cowboy hat. Uh, everybody bring your dog in the picture. Everybody, we just delivered wine bottles to everybody's doorstep, grab it and pour yourself a glass. You know, like that kind of stuff can be more engaging than your typical Zoom webinar. So, uh, but I think we still have a little ways to go in this pandemic. So I'm sure more creative avenues will will emerge, but I, I still think they're just as effective. In terms of your portfolio, how are the businesses doing in the pandemic? Uh, have you got businesses that are thriving in, in spite of all of the lockdown issues? That's a great question. You know, I think we are an early stage software investor. We are historically consumer and enterprise, although the past few years have been mostly enterprise. And I think because of that, the bulk of our portfolio is thriving post-pandemic. It's hard to say and express. You feel bad saying that because there's so much suffering, you know, obviously in this in this world because of the pandemic. But the companies that majority of the companies we've invested in are responsible for at a high level digital transformation of those various industries. So you look at construction and healthcare and insurance, for example, pre-pandemic, everybody kind of knew that they needed to spend more on digital, but it wasn't a adapt or die type of mentality. And the pandemic became a forcing function for them to adapt or die. So you know, if you do not spend more on digital, if you look at fintech, for example, banks do not have nearly the same interface they've had with their customer, right? Pre-pandemic, they can't, they're shuttering their retail branches or they're certainly seeing significantly less traffic. And so they need to bolster their digital storefronts and their digital interfaces with their customers. And they need tools to do that. So they need to buy more software. They need to buy more SaaS. I think SaaS by definition makes businesses more efficient. And 
that's what business uh, more efficient digitally. And that's what businesses are striving for now. So yeah, the bulk of our portfolio is thriving, especially the SaaS and the companies responsible for digital transformation. So on the whole, people are doing well, or the businesses are doing well. That's great to hear. Have you got any individuals in the portfolio who are struggling emotionally or mentally with the, the issues that they're facing, either direct financial fears and concerns or just wider issues about what's happening in the world and, and starting to affect them and their families? For sure. We have not yet seen, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg with regards to the mental health effects, you know, of the pandemic. You know, there's so many different layers and types. You know, I know me and my wife, for example, we have two young kids, a five-year-old and a six-month-old. I think parents are feeling a brunt, the brunt of, of working from home. I often just literally wish I could finish thoughts in my head without being interrupted with a, uh, with a five-year-old or six-month-old. Fortunately, they're both out of the apartment right now. But that's obviously, you know, we're obviously all very fortunate to be safe and healthy. And I think that's an issue, but certainly not, not nearly as significant as so many other issues. I think, you know, people of color are disproportionately affected, you know, for sure, by the pandemic. Folks that don't even maybe have the luxury of being able to social distance or, you know, being forced to have a job that is considered essential, you know, in the, in, in the pandemic are disproportionately affected. And a lot of neighborhoods are disproportionately affected. So anyway, that, you know, those are kind of a few examples of some of the mental health issues that I think we'll have to, it'll take probably years to analyze and to, and to work on as a, as a society. Now, you've been through a couple of pretty horrific recessions already in your startup and investing world. So are you able to leverage some of those experiences and, and help some of the younger entrepreneurs to cope with the current crisis? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, listen, if you are under the age of 38, you have actually never lived through, you've never worked through a crisis right? Essentially, if you graduated after the financial crisis, right? After 2008, 2009, everything kept on growing. Everything was bullish. You're in a bull market. Things are growing. Things are great. And so this was your first kind of reality check, like, oh my God, what's happening, right? And to a lot of, a lot of folks, like, oh my God, the world's ending. And so I think uh, it's important to note, build companies through two of these cycles 01 and 08 that's what these things are they are cycles and some take longer than others to rebound from but sure enough things will come back and i think it's about just having that long-term mindset pacing yourself that you know we're probably still in the early stages of this pandemic take the early wins grab joy you know where 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 you can take care of yourself exercise you know, every day is important. Eating right is important. You know, if you need to, if you're a parent working from home, take off Fridays, you know, if you can, you know, tell your employer, I think there probably will be more mandates from employers with uh, team members with young kids. 
to be able to take that time to just have it, you know, to, to, to have a thought to themselves or at least be able to focus, you know, on the family without constantly getting interrupted on both sides. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it's our, our, also our responsibility, you know, entrepreneurs that have lived through these cycles to be able to articulate that to entrepreneurs that haven't. And so, you know, we're, we're certainly doing that with founders in our portfolio and, you know, the industry at large. I'd love to hear about some of your most recent investments. What have you been investing in during the pandemic? And has your investment thesis changed, shifted somewhat as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, we, we try not to chase trends too much. For example, a few years ago, you know, we weren't doing a lot of the ICOs and token in, the, in, in, the, in, in crypto that was like, you know, very hot. I think we want to just stay at a high level, very kind of focused and consistent on areas that we believe will become, you know, massive disruptive businesses, you know, 10 years from them, right? Because we're seed investors, most of our investments that we make today, you know, are not really going to blossom until year seven, eight, nine, 10. We're seeing that with our earliest investments in funds one and two which were 2010 and 2012. So, you know, we, we realize we, we can't really, we shouldn't be chasing, you know, trends, but also we need to be mindful of them. We published an incredible, my partner Vic and our junior investor, Kristen, published an amazing blog on our website, eniac.vc, called The Effects, essentially a thought experiment in the effects of COVID as accelerants or decelerants in specific areas. And so we've actually analyzed, you know, a bunch of different spaces and just put some thoughts together on, on where we think things dramatically accelerating and, and where things are probably going to slow down. And so needless to say, things that involve a physical interface of, of humans, you know, like um, in-store shopping, things like businesses that are built predicated on maybe physical office space like we work. And by the way, these businesses had issues anyway, pre-pandemic, but they're dramatically being decelerated post-COVID. And then on the flip side, you have incredible ecosystems like the Shopify ecosystem and the e-commerce ecosystem. Obviously, Amazon has been roaring. They've become a real core component to everybody's health and livelihood and infrastructure. But now you have arms dealers for other retailers, you know, and other independents, which Shopify is providing. And who would who would have thought Shopify would be a you know larger than hundred billion dollar market cap? Well, sure enough, um, and it's still going. So bullish on this new generation of e-commerce. Bullish on, you know, telehealth. We actually invested in a pet telehealth company a couple of years ago called Fuzzy, F-U-Z-Z-Y, yourfuzzy.com. And, you know, I got to tell you, we've never seen this many tailwinds. There's two interesting effects here. One is in a pandemic, everybody wants puppies. There's a like a puppy shortage, like literally no joke. If you want a puppy, you can't even get one, uh, at least in New York City, because, you know, people are lonely. They want companions and it's a good time right? To, uh, to curl up with somebody and, 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 and rub, rub somebody's belly. And, you know, 
obviously when you have a pet, uh, it's more challenging to go, go to a vet than ever before. So uh, fire up the app and have your appointment right there and have your meds sent the next day. So I think these types of areas we're seeing dramatic, dramatic acceleration. And so distributed workforce software as well. We have a company in the space, in the Zoom space, that's also seeing a lot of traction. What's the latest enterprise investment you made and what's the rationale for that one? Yeah, so it has not yet been announced yet, but it is an open source software that essentially helps businesses essentially group their customers together in different ways for low-hanging fruit is for marketing activation. So you can actually see maybe some of your customers or some of your perspectives and maybe other co- other respective cohorts and create a text campaign, create a MailChimp campaign, create a ad campaign in a very easy way that can be customized. So think of it as a, on the high end, you have a company like Segment that does this as a CDP, customer data platform. And this is an open source way to do that. So we're generally bullish on open source software selling into developers. Um, But we thought that this software could be super interesting for anybody to use in an open source fashion. So that's an example of a recent enterprise investment uh, that sells to developers. We are about to, or in the midst of working on a company that helps almost like vertical SaaS for other types of SMBs. So one SMB we're excited about is, is, is the law firm in general has historically not had a lot of tools to use, whether it's um, CRM or analytics on their customers and sales. That's been one vertical that has been, you know, pretty neglected from the use of technology. It's been almost entirely a complete services business. And so we're excited by those opportunities where um, a piece of software can dramatically, you know, change the face of some of these industries that are historically not digital at all. You know, those are some examples of some recent investments. A little earlier in this conversation, you referenced um, Black Lives Matter. How do you feel this increasing social consciousness about ethnicity and diversity is going to feed into the tech and VC sectors over the next two, three, four years? Obviously, you know, post Rodney King or post Trayvon Martin, I, I feel like there were definitely movements in this country, but I think I've never seen more energy. It's only been a couple of months since George Floyd, but that has persisted, especially in the tech industry around this issue. Um, and, you know, we're, we're very proud of a lot of our colleagues that are doing amazing things. But I think this was a big wake up moment. Everybody kind of looked around and said, oh, wow, like our venture firm is all white men, you know, or, oh, wow, my startup, you know, has no diversity. White middle-aged men, typically. Right. Or, you know, my startup has no diversity. And I got to say, I'm very proud of the founders. A lot of our founders have taken initiative to add a diverse board member 
they have taken initiatives to, you know, only look from for investors um, that uh, have diversity as a value. They have changed their recruiting strategies to encompass a lot more diversity, you know, and not just more folks of color, but also more women than men. And so, you know, we've been a huge proponent of, you know, the best innovation comes from a multitude of perspectives. And so the more diverse your organization is, the more innovation you're going to see. We still, everybody still has a lot of work to do, but I think this is the first time I've seen like every VC firm in the world publishing something about Black Lives Matter. And let's see if people, you know, keep it up. Uh, One initiative, we did it, we are doing it, ENIAC, but we announced two months ago, actually the end of May, was using one of our recent investments, Superpeer, just a one-to-one video platform. We would open up, you know, permanent office hours. And so every week I meet 10 uh, Black founders and, you know, we try to help however we can. What we're finding is that it is true, you know, networks of knowledge and capital are not commoditized. They're not flattened. And so I'll have so many incredible meetings with incredible founders that just don't know about this pocket of capital or this pocket of customers or these companies that are actually similar to what they're building in or these companies that might be partners for what they're doing. And I feel like all we're doing is just connecting the dots. We're kind of like a like an old school phone operator, you know, plugging one cord into another area and just building these bridges, you know, within different networks. Even that is so helpful. I remember as a founder starting out when an investor who, by the way, might, and most of them did pass on my startup, but they ended up making an introduction of significant value. They just opened up their networks. They were able to see a connection. And often those introductions were trajectory changing for my business at the time. And so that inspired us to do the same. And I think it's even more important to do the same with underrepresented founders who don't have those networks, who could really use, you know, those introductions. So that's something we've been doing. And, you know, it's actually amounting to something that we want to do internally, which is invest in a lot more founders of color, invest in a lot more underrepresented founders. But I think this is where it starts, where you can help these businesses along. And we say we want to help every entrepreneur get to a place where we can then invest. Very much hope that this is just the beginning of a, of a long-term trend, but it's great to hear some of those uh, emerging stories. And it's been fantastic having you on the show, Nihal, a street-fighting MBA who's brilliant at uh, connecting the dots and um, looking forward to maybe catch up with you next year and see if the portfolio continues to go from strength to strength. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 